Welcome to Documentary First, an inside look at a first-time filmmaker's journey. I'm your host, Jason Rugg, filling in for Josh Lindsay, and with us is our first-time filmmaker, Christian Taylor. Hello there, Jason. Good to see you, Christian. And then also joining us uh, in and t- t- taking my seat is Jeff Kurtnacker, the composer of the movie. Hey, Jason. Hey, Jeff. Nice hey, Jeff. to have you here. Hey, Christian. It's good to be here. Thank you. I don't have any buttons to push, Jason. Sorry, but I can fake it. (laughs) It's okay. I fake it, too. (laughs) Well, uh, so I guess we'll just dive right into it. Christian, I hear you have some fun updates for us. Yeah, well, you know, again, I am still here in Laurel, Mississippi. I'm helping my dad. Um, I'm hoping to go home in a week, so I'm super excited about that. Uh, We did sell my dad's house, and we did find a place for him to live. So we'll be doing that move tomorrow, and, uh, you know, I'm really happy to kind of move that ball down the track. I've missed my life. I've missed working on films and stuff that I'm typically doing. I've missed my husband, so I'm really looking forward to getting home. Um, I've spent time this week. Uh, The thing I'm most proud of is that I am trying to put a deal together. I've talked to you guys about this before between um, L'Oreal, Delta, Fort Bragg, um, Michelin, and that's all kind of coming together. So this week I made the pitch to Fort Bragg and, you know, this whole idea is that we partner with Delta to bring over Danny and Flo, as well as bring in some veterans. And then they go about and, you know, with the film, um, at an event at Michelin in South Carolina, at L'Oreal in New York, and then at Fort Bragg in North Carolina. Uh, and that way people get to meet Danny and Flo. That is if they can get out of France, which is still up in the air, thanks to the Delta variant. So, I'm not exactly sure how that's all going to shake out, but um, I was excited to get that pitch off that I was working on. Um, And yeah, so we're still uh, receiving lots of text messages and emails about people watching the film on Delta. I even received messages on YouTube from people that just random people that watched it. I received a phone call because they went to our website and called me and told me how wonderful it was. So it's really rewarding to have the plane be on Delta and have it exposed to so many different people uh, and then find out that they're going to our website, they're subscribing to our newsletter, they're doing stuff like that. So uh, I never realized how impactful your film getting on an airline was, uh, but but apparently it is. And so that's been super encouraging. And I think it's good for our reputation going forward uh, with the Brave Dutch. I would hope that as our movie gets traction here, it will cause other people to follow us on other projects that we're doing. So, um, you know, that's where we are. We are still, um, you know, promoting the word that the film is out on Hoopla and people can find it in their libraries. Uh, So make sure you get a library card. And if you want to borrow the film from your library, that's possible. And um, yeah, the other stuff I've been working on is the Brave Dutch. Uh, uh, Christian, I just wanted to say for the airline thing, I don't know if we've talked about this. My sister actually works for one of the companies that supplies the airlines with the equipment to put movies and things on um, airplanes and cruise ships and a couple not, other things. I did not know that. <laughs> my dad actually used to work for them too. That's how my sister got in there and he built their network operations center. So they would keep track of, okay, this one, you know, is having trouble talking to the satellite, getting internet. Okay. How do we fix that? Um, so a lot of how that technology works is they have a really small library of onboard content. That's content that's actually loaded on the plane. It's not like it's streaming it from somewhere. It's actually loaded on. So a lot of the, 
airlines have a really limited library. And like I flew Southwest um, about a month ago and there were like 12 movies and that was it. <laughs> so it's, it's a very small library. And so I think that's probably why it's, it's a very selective thing. And when you get on a whole airline, that's a pretty big deal. So yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I did. I didn't know that, but now that you mention it, I do. You're right. It's not like this huge, vast library like Netflix that you can scroll through endless movies to find. It very. It's always a very limited uh, supply. And thankfully, um, we did work out a deal with them where we were in the spotlight. And what that means is when you sit on the plane and you turn on the equipment, you know, when they spotlight the films they really think you should watch. And we had to. Um, I don't know what the word is. Uh, there was a cost for that. You know, we probably received less money or something like that in order to be in the spotlight. I don't know how it works. I'm not a distributor. I just know uh, there is a cost for that. It's more expensive to be in the spotlight than not be in the spotlight. So cool. Thank you for letting me know that, Jason. That's odd that I didn't know that, but now, now I do. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, all right. I think, is it time to move on to our guest? Let's move on, because our guest is an awesome one today. All right. So I'm going to welcome Joe Amade to the show. How you doing, Joe? Pretty good. Glad to be here. Nice to see everybody. Glad to we have you. We are so, so I'll happy give a, a for you to be here. <laughs> so I'll just give a quick a bio for <laughs> Joe here. Uh, Joe Amade has enjoyed a a career in the film and home entertainment industry for more than 40 years. Under Amade's leadership, Virgil Film has released such award-winning hits as I Am Chris Farley, I Am Paul Walker, I Am Heath Ledger, Super Size Me, Clarence, and Clarence Clemens, Who Do I Think I Am? And he's a proud grandfather to two young girls. So, Joe, that's your bio, but we would ah. love to hear <laughs> what, what your perspective on your history is. I'm old. That's my perspective. Uh, I think I started releasing films. Reach. I'm here too. <laughs> you know, maybe Harold Lloyd. Uh, but no, I uh, um, thank you for mentioning my grandkids. I, I've also been married to a wonderful woman for 40 years. So I'm very, very fortunate when it comes to that. But I, I started in the business in the infancy stages of home video. Uh, I was actually fixing sewing machines for a living. And a video store opened up, the very first video store opened up in the Philadelphia area where I'm from. And being a, a film fanatic and a film geek since I was a child, uh, I walked into this store and we all know what it was like. I just looked around and it was like heaven. And within a week, I wasn't fixing sewing machines anymore. <laughs> I was working at that store because you could bring home as many movies as you want. You know, I didn't have to pay for them. And so, you know, the progression, it was a natural progression. That one store turned into 15 stores. I became the buyer. Um, that chain got, got sold. I went to work for a, uh, a studio, a, an independent studio called IVE, which was located out in uh, California. It was owned by Carol Co. And we had the Terminator movies. We had the Rambo films. And we were also run by um, a gentleman who was my boss, by the name of Jose Menendez. So that name might ring a bell to you. Um, in a bad way, unfortunately, Jose and his wife, Kitty, were murdered by their sons, Eric and Lyle, who worked with us. Uh, that was a, a crazy, crazy time for all of us that worked there. Uh, that company lasted. I stayed there for another few years, ended up uh, going over to Turner, 
Turner Home Entertainment, which was owned by Ted Turner. I actually followed a mentor of mine to go work there, and I worked for Ted Turner uh, for four or five years until he sold the company. And this is when the home entertainment and the VHS business was flourishing. Stores were opening up every single day. They all needed 20,000, 30,000 tapes to open up their stores. It was an amazing business. Blockbuster came to be. Hollywood Entertainment came to be. Um, Walmart started selling videos, and the business flourished. So I was a Turner and, until Ted sold the company uh, to AOL. And um, I worked for a couple other companies, Polygram Home Entertainment. And then I got the opportunity to run the home entertainment division for USA Films and a gentleman named Scott Greenstein. USA Films released movies like Traffic, Being John Malkovich, Gosford Park, you know, quintessential independently made films. And I learned the independent film business through Scott Greenstein and the people that I worked with at USA. Um, USA was owned by Barry Diller. And Barry Diller, like everybody else, sold the company. And uh, at that point, I, you know, didn't want to deal with the mechanisms of corporate America. I knew this could happen again. Didn't have anything to do with our success. Um, so I went out on my own, found some partners, and started a company called Hart Sharp. Uh, Hart Sharp was named after John Hart and Jeff Sharp, independent filmmakers that um, made movies like Boys Don't Cry, You Can Count on Me, a lot of great indie films. Um, and, and we started a joint venture that was uh, bought and sold a couple times. And then we get to 2008, and I took over, uh, took over the company myself, bought the company from those investors, and uh, changed the name to Virgil Films after an old friend of mine in the movies. And we started acquiring movies. And uh, at the same time, within six months of me starting this new business, Blockbuster and Hollywood closed. And the country went into a recession. So my timing has always been perfect during these times. But we survived. Uh, we, we, our first major acquisition was Supersize Me. And if everybody remembers Supersize Me, Morgan Spurlock eats nothing but McDonald's for 30 days. Nobody wanted the film. Uh, the studios didn't want to hamper their Happy Meal uh, deals. And everyone else thought that McDonald's would sue. And, you know, I'm a guy in outside of Philadelphia owning a company saying, sue me. You know, I, I was imagining the headlines in USA Today, McDonald's sues Joe Amaday, you know. <laughs> um, they never sued. We the, the movie went on to be nominated for Best Documentary and uh, McDonald's stopped their um, Super Size Me brand. Never set foot in McDonald's since, to be honest with you. Um, so we started buying a lot of documentaries, acquiring a lot of documentaries, and we were very fortunate. <clears throat> we signed a deal with Oprah Winfrey to take out a whole bunch of documentaries that were going to be on her TV station, the new OWN channel. We landed Restrepo, uh, a film about Afghanistan and our soldiers fighting there that went on to be nominated for Best Documentary. And throughout the years, we were able to acquire some pretty good docs, some very award-winning docs, and some big, some small, and some in-between. Um, we we've also, as a company, have been able to ride with the multiple, many changes that the film world or the film distribution world 
um, has brought us. We were one of the very first companies um, that got a phone call from Netflix asking for uh, a group of titles to stream. And I remember asking what streaming was. And <laughs> it was me what streaming was. And I said, you're out of your mind. Um, and I remember saying this. I said, no one is ever going to stop going to video stores. <laughs> uh, so you have a guest that's really like, you know. <laughs> I remember saying it. Um, and uh, so we were able to morph from a VHS company to a DVD company to a streaming company. And now uh, still a, a, a firm that buys films, puts them, uh, tries to sell them to the streaming companies. We put all of our movies up on all the transactional sites. And, and the biggest addition and the major change for us is on top of continuing to do all that, we develop films along with filmmakers, films and television projects, series, and present them to those same accounts, Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, Apple, you know, Disney Plus, and try to get them to finance those projects. Um, we've been doing it for a very long time. Uh, it's been, you know, the film business is, is it's, it's a pinnacle of fun and success and glamour. Um, I have been very fortunate. My wife and I have been, you know, we've been to the Oscars a couple of times. We've, I've been to film festivals all around the world, things that I never imagined I would get to do as a young, as a young kid. Um, so I've, ex I've been able to experience all of those things. Um, and I'm very lucky at the same time. Um, as everyone says, it's a business. That's why they call it the film business. And, um, you know, you acquire movies and sometimes they work and a lot of times they don't. And so it's, uh, it's, and keeping up with these changes, it sounds like it was easy, but it's not. Um, but you know, I've lived by the creed that you never, uh, you know, you never take advantage of, or you never, you know, you, you treat people fairly. And that's enabled me to stay in this business. And that's, you know, people remember that when it comes to Virgil films. And I think my, probably my proudest part of all of this is when a filmmaker comes back to me with their next film, even though the film that I released for them didn't work, didn't make any money, but they applaud the effort. Um, mm -hmm. Cause that's really what it's all about. And, you know, when you get right down to it, you know, I'm a firm believer in families first and family always comes first, but I love movies. I mean, you know, I try to watch something almost every day. Um, I've been like this for as long as I can remember. <laughs> and I love all kinds of films. Um, and that's, and I'm working in that business. So I am very, very fortunate. Well, you know, it's interesting that you say about your reputation, that's really how we met, because I've told the story on here before, when I was at the Julian Dubuque Film Festival, I met Donna Reed's daughter, Mary yes. Owen, and uh, she came back to me one day and said, you know, Christian, I just have to tell you, I watched your movie, it's phenomenal, I've shared it with my friend Joe, uh, he helped package and distribute the Donna Reed show, he is an awesome guy. He is one of the good guys. You really need to talk to him. And I've known you now, I would say, at least since late May. And everything she told me is true. I mean, it's why you're here on this podcast today. And, you know, I did talk about where you're working on The Brave Dutch with us. And 
you know, every interaction that I have had with you, um, it has been about honesty, trustworthiness, truthfulness. Um, and it is so rare to find that kind of relationship in this crazy film business. Uh, I don't ever want to let you go. I, you know, I, I, I already feel like, you know, whatever I want to do, I want to do it with Joe and truthfully, you know, filmmakers, filmmakers that listen to this podcast, that's one of the biggest questions that I always hear. How in the world do you find a distributor that you can trust? That's going to tell you the truth. That's going to be honest. And uh, Joe, I'm sorry to tell you, but you're the only one I've found so far. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, uh, it's, you gotta, you gotta sleep at night. You know, it's pretty simple, you know? Um, And the hardest part about it is, you know, the film business is mostly bad news. I mean, most films don't make it. That's, that's for every film that you see opens up at your local theater on Friday, there's 30 that didn't. Um, it's a very, very hard business. And it's becoming harder because of the technology. You know, everyone, everyone seems to think that, oh, there's 20 new streaming sites out there. So it must be easier to sell movies. Well, no, because there's 20,000 more filmmakers out there because they could, some of them are making movies on their phones. It's 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 not like it used to be, you know, most a lot of the filmmakers we come across haven't even gone to film school. Um, like me. So it's so, yeah, so so it's it's but but that's why when I watched your movie, now that I've heard that is even more amazing that you're able <laughs> to pull something like that off without having that training that, you know, a lot of other people have that probably couldn't have pulled off what you pulled off with Normandy. So, it's a miracle so of we, God. So, yeah, so it's being honest. It's being. It's saying to a filmmaker, "It's not working." You know, nobody wants it, and that's the hardest thing in the world for a filmmaker to hear that nobody wants it because they automatically think nobody wants it because they don't like it or they don't think it's any good. But most of the time, that has nothing to do with it. It has everything to do with budgets. It has everything to do with do they have other films that are even a little bit like it storyline wise. You know, um, and that's in the case of documentaries, you know, we when when we released Restrepo, I'm sorry, it actually started before Restrepo. I got involved in a film called Patriot Act and Patriot Act was directed by a comedian um, that went with uh, which is uh, the he went on a USO tour. Um, Jeff Ross, the comedian's Jeff Ross. And he went on a USO tour with Drew Carey to Iraq and he filmed it. And it was very funny. And we and we took that out, but we took that film. First, we took it. We actually took it to Walter Reed Hospital and Bethesda and gave copies of the film out to soldiers, wounded soldiers, which was a life-changing, life-changing. And, and remind me to tell you a funny story about that visit. But then we also took the film to Guantanamo and showed it to the soldiers in Guantanamo. And just being with the soldiers at at all of these places, you know, we, we vowed at Virgil to start releasing films um, that pay tribute to the soldiers that are coming home from Iraq um, and Afghanistan. And obviously the pinnacle of that was Restrepo. But, you know, when you get to number 12 and 13 of these films, the buyers like Joe, you know, it's, it's only been a different group of soldiers coming back. It's all kind of like the same thing. So that's, so, it, so again, it, it, and that goes back to, 
your film is getting passed on, but it doesn't mean they didn't like the film. If I thought they weren't going to like the film, I would not have acquired it anyway. You know, it, it wouldn't have gotten past me. You know, we get pitched 20, 25 movies a week. Um, and we buy maybe one or two of them. Uh, and very rarely do we get pitched 20 films and I'm buying seven or eight. It just, it's just, it just doesn't happen that way. I want to so, go back to Restrepo first. Yeah, I'll give you a very quick ending story on Patriot Act. So I released Supersize Me. And Morgan and I, Morgan Sparlock and I became very, very close friends, still are to this day. And obviously, I'm telling Morgan Spurlock, I am never walking into a McDonald's again for the rest of my life. And I don't. And it's kind of like a badge of honor at this point. Four or five years later, still not eating at McDonald's. Jeff Ross and I are in a car and we leave Bethesda. I'm sorry, we leave Walter Reed Hospital to drive to Bethesda. And the only place to stop and eat is at a McDonald's. And I said to Jeff, I, I, I can't. And he's like, and he, Jeff said a few words I don't want to say on his podcast. He says, well, <laughs> we'll go to the drive-thru. So me and Jeff were at the window and my phone rings. And I, it's Morgan. And I'm not thinking. I put it on speaker. And the very first thing Morgan Spurlock hears is, would you like your Big Mac or whatever the woman is saying? And I am like busted. <laughs> busted. And he says, are you at McDonald's? And I'm like, uh, I said, I just handed the phone to Jeff Ross. And he just took it away. And his comic genius got me out of it. So, it's a great story. I'll never forget. Oh, timing it. is everything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you had a question about Restrepo. Yeah. So I wanted to yeah. say a couple things about Restrepo. Number one. I did have a son that fought in Afghanistan, as most of you know, and he came back uh, recently, he said to me, and, and I even think it was Joe when I was talking to you and he found out you had distributed Restrepo. He said, um, Mom, you've asked me a million times what it was like to be in Afghanistan. Watch Restrepo because that's the closest thing I've ever seen. Yeah. So it was a, I, I, I've been too scared to watch it, actually. I've never seen it. And it's because it's so close. I mean, my son was almost killed there. And, um, he, uh, it's, when he turned, when he turned in his, uh, flak jacket, you know, there were shrapnel holes in it. And so he's told me those stories. And so my imagination, of course, as a filmmaker is so vivid, um, that it's been, I've been afraid to watch that film. But the other interesting thing about that film is when our, film released on iTunes every hour of every day, almost I was checking the charts and I was checking the charts before it released on iTunes. I was che checking them after every time Restrepo was in the number one spot. And at this point I hadn't even met you. And all I could see was just Restrepo was all yeah. the way at the top. And, and then I was like, it was released in 2010. Like, how is that even possible? And I mean, it's still in the top charts on iTunes. It's not at number one today, but it's always up there. And I, you know, I'd love for you to talk about your journey with that film. You know, the journey um, is quite, it was, is ended up being very, um, emotional and sad, uh, to be honest with you. So Tim Hetherington, award-winning, Pulitzer Prize-winning photojournalist, and Sebastian Younger, you know, Pulitzer Prize-winning writer, 
wrote The Perfect Storm and a bunch of other great books, they decided to co-direct this film and they embedded themselves in with uh, a group of soldiers that were the furthest into Afghanistan, the Korangol Valley, the furthest into Afghanistan that you can go. And they're at the bottom of a valley and it's just nothing but mountains filled with Taliban shooting at them almost all the time. It's, It's crazy. And the uh, Restrepo is named after Juan Restrepo, who was the cool soldier, the guy that played the guitar that everybody looked up to that was killed almost the first week they started the film. So they made the film and it came out. We went on the, you know, we were lucky enough to go on that journey of having the film released theatrically. You know, we attended the Spirit Awards. It was nominated Spirit Awards. It won the National Board of Review. We were able to go with Tim and Sebastian. And I became, you know, pretty good friends with both of them. And a year later, Tim um, was in Libya and was tragically killed. And um, it put, a, it, you know, it's to this day, it's put a pall over everything. It's a sad, you know, it's a sad ending. Tim was a wonderful man, a very handsome guy, a guy that women and men loved. Um, Sebastian more reserved, still a great guy, but um, Tim was just just the life of, a, of the party. And, um, you know, he was shot and he was um, in the leg, but where they were at, there were no facilities, no medical facilities, I think for like three or four hours away. And they put him in the back of a pickup truck and tried to get him help, and they, they didn't make it. Um, Sebastian, from that point on, promised uh, two things in his life. One is that he would never put himself in harm's way um, because of his family, because he witnessed what Tim's family went through. And then he started this movement to really protect journalists when they go into these sites. Um, so it's still one of our proudest experiences one of my proudest experiences of ever releasing a film and soldiers have said the same thing to me um, about afghanistan that it's about the only film out there that really portrayed it as it was because they just had the cameras rolling on these guys and they would be like sitting around smoking a cigarette and then all of a sudden you know there's there's bullets all over the place it was crazy and it was also indicative of why i and i used to ask them why are they there like I get it. You, you want to, you want to, you can, we can talk all day about why we're in Afghanistan, but why are you in that Korangol Valley? You're kind of just pissing everybody off, you know? And if you move back 20 miles, it's not going to, you're not defeating anything. So it was, it was crazy time, but it was, it was, uh, it was great. And then we, we were fortunate enough. They made, they did make a sequel um, called Korangol and we were able to release that as well. Well, so can you so talk sometimes to you me? Get these, as a Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say. Sometimes you get these experiences of releasing certain films. And they become lifelong experiences. Super Size Me, obviously, was one. Uh, Restrepo was another. The I Am films. um, You know, you talked about I Am Chris Farley. We've done, gosh, I Am JFK Jr. We have a a whole slew of them. You can go to our website and see them all. But there's other films. You know, we released a film. Here's an example of a film that we struggled with called We Are Columbine. 
And I, I got a call from these producers, another just true story, got a call from these producers. And they said, we got this film, We Are Columbine. And it's directed by a student that was there hiding under a table while, while the shooters were walking around the cafeteria. And I said, I, you know, you know, there's a limit and uh, people aren't going to want to watch this movie. I mean, it's too depressing. People are not going to watch this movie. And, um, I, and I remember I, I said, so I'm not, I'm not sure I, I will meet the filmmaker, but I'm, uh, please tell her my reservations. Um, I'm not sure I want to release this movie. And I hung up the phone and I walked downstairs to make myself some lunch. And I turned on the TV and CNN was on and the Parkland shooting was happening at that moment. Wow. And I went back upstairs and called these guys, these Chicago guys, called them back and said, we need to release this movie. It was just weird. Try selling that to Netflix. I mean, nobody wanted it. I just, everybody was scared to death of it. Um, but, you know, one buyer stood up at Hulu and said, no, we'll, we'll take this film. It's important. And Hulu had it for a couple of years. And I think we just, I think the license just ended and it's available on, um, uh, you know, Amazon and iTunes and stuff like that. But, you, you know, I got to meet, um, we had a premiere in Littleton and I got to meet a lot of the kids that are now adults and, you know, they all started telling stories and one of the stories that came out um, of the film was uh, the director, Laura Farber, was hiding under a cafeteria table with two other students. And there was a uh, backpack under the table as well. And they just thought it's, you know, with all the commotion and chaos, somebody left their backpack. And they actually thought, you know, if we get out of here, let's grab the backpack because it's somebody's backpack. And there did come a time where they were able to run out, and they did, and uh, the backpack blew up. It was one of the bombs that was placed. And wow. they could have been sitting right there. So you get to experience these things. Um, so, you know, we are a type of distributor. We don't release a whole lot of movies every month because we like to work the titles. And because of that, we, you know, we – we do get to to live some of the stories and some of them are very uplifting and you know we're like this christmas we're releasing a movie about the making of it's a wonderful life i mean that's nothing but joy you know um yeah and uh, so you get to you know if you do it right um they work um but you you have all these we have all these relationships all over the world with filmmakers that you know most of them are good there's a couple that I would question, but most of them are, most of them are pretty good. Well, you know, um, I, I want, I promise you, I know you've got somewhere to go and uh, I have so many more questions, but we really only have a few minutes left and we want to save some time to do some special things for our Patreon supporters. So I'm going to try to wrap it up here now, but I want to ask you um, if you would be willing to come back and because uh, I have a whole host of other questions, I'm sure the rest of us do too. Uh, would you be willing to come back? Great. Yes, my pleasure. Yes. Um, so, Jeff, Jeff, since today you're standing in, guess what? You get the first question to ask Joe. So, you've been listening so patiently. Uh, I want you to have your shot. 
so one question that comes to mind is, are there unique challenges in trying to sell movies based on genre? Are comedies different than horror movies, different than documentaries? Are there unique challenges um, based on the genre of film that you're dealing with? Yes. Um, the mainstay has been for such a long time that any kind of genre film, action film, um, works best more than anything else hmm. across the board. You, as, as more and more films are being made, you know, having some kind of cast really works. So if we, if we go out and make an action film and the four of us are kicking butt, yeah, it's okay, but it, we'd rather be Bruce Willis or somebody sure. of note. Um, horror, I don't know why, but still works. Um, romantic comedies, down very, very much towards the bottom. Wow. Um, and, and documentaries, are even, even under romantic comedies. Um, but it's really, yeah, it is. It, and now when you go to pitch, um, it's different divisions. So at Netflix, for example, they have different divisions of different genres. So you need to, you need to have multiple meetings if you have multiple genres of films. Wow. So, but yeah, there is a pecking order. And wow. those... And that's why you see when you go to iTunes, you're going to see yeah, a lot of action films. That's why Liam Neeson has a new career. Wow. Makes sense. Good question, Jeff. Okay, Jason, you get a turn too. You got a question for him? I do. Um, so with, like you've talked about your, your long history uh, from all the way at the home distribution start all the way till now, where do you think the industry is headed in the next five to 10 years? What do you think is going to happen? Man, it's, I can I can tell you what I hope doesn't happen, and I can tell you what I think might happen. I mean, I, I love that. I, I, I pray. My, my my biggest concern and my biggest fear is that people stop going to the theater. I, I mean, I'm in the business that wants you to watch a movie on TV, but I don't want you to stop going to the theater. The theater is cherished. The theater is, you know, inside that darkened room. There's nothing like it, and that's what it's all about. And I don't want that to end. I think that experience will change somewhat. I don't think it's going away, uh, but I think it will change somewhat. And you know, luckily here in this country, we have such a huge art house circuit that the the, the really good films. Um, and I'm not taking away anything from Marvel movies and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but there will always be an art house circuit to go see movies at. Uh, but I think it's going to be streaming and, and transactional is going to continue to grow. You know, it, it was moving at a snail's pace and COVID changed everything. Um, if, if a movie's available, if you're paying for HBO Max and that movie that just opened up today is also on HBO Max, why wouldn't you watch it on HBO Max? And, you know, people say, well, the screen's not as big and all that stuff. That doesn't matter. Um, it might matter on those Marvel movies, but you know, a lot of other movies, it's not going to matter. So I just think it's going to be a rich combination of streaming and, and also, but the theatrical experience will not, will not go away. Well, and I think, you know, we're in the, we're in the wild West right now. We really have no way to know of, of what's exactly going to happen. And I know there's a huge segment of the population that cherishes the movie houses, just like you do, just like I do. And, you know, there will be some segment of our society, I think, that clings on to that. The question is, is that going to be enough 
to support the industry, you know, ultimately. And the other thing that's happening is you and I were talking about this earlier. We have this younger generation that has been fed a constant diet of YouTube where the it's free, the quality is low, and they're used to watching it on a screen that they can hold in their hand. So the idea of, you know, I'm going to go and watch something that's very expensive in a theater on a big screen, I don't really want to pay that much money. And I don't want to go have to go out of my house to watch it. And so the question is, is the pendulum going to swing back at some point? You know, who knows? But we do know we are in a serious area of change, just like that area of change when the internet was born. You know, we knew it was going to change. Nobody just knew exactly how. Um, yeah, so I, I share your you know, pessimism. The, 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 the... Go ahead. Well, the last, the last point about that, though, is that movies have always been the perfect date, okay, since the 30s. When you went on a date, you took a girl to the movies or you took your, 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 you know, you took them out to dinner and to a movie. Um, that's still a staple and that's still happening. And that's when things will really deteriorate if that stops. Um, yeah. But again, right now they're going to see the Marvel movies and, you know, they, they need to see other stuff as well. That's true. Well, thank you for that, Joe. Jason, will you take us out? And then you people that support us on Patreon, uh, make sure you stick around or go and visit us there because we're going to have this extra content for you. If you're not supporting us on Patreon, doesn't cost that much. There are a lot of really awesome perks there. Plus, you get to see extra interviews like we're going to have here with Joe. Uh, you can watch our film on Apple TV, iTunes. You can watch it on Hulu through your, not Hulu, Hoopla through your library. And, uh, you know, just you can write us if you want to get on the DVD presale list. Go to thegirlywarfreedom.com if you want to buy things in our shop. Uh, thank you so much for supporting us. And now, Jason, over to you. And thank you for listening to Documentary First, where we believe everyone has a story to tell and you can be the one to tell it. Yes, you can. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Documentary First. We really appreciate your partnership with us. We can't do any of this without you. So thank you so much for listening, for donating, and for following along on our journey. If you are able to make a donation this week, we would really appreciate it. We are supported by donors who give us $100 or less, so anything helps. Also, if you're able to share the news about The Girl Who Wore Freedom with your friends and family, please do that on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or email. And sign up for our newsletter at thegirlwhowarefreedom.com. Please go to thegirlwhowarefreedom.com slash donate to make a donation today.